0: These are two poems from Seamus Heaney's second collection, Door into the Dark, from 1969. And they continue the theme that I mentioned in uh, the last episode of the buried darkness and violence that is inherent in Seamus Heaney's poetry. Um, He is not all uh, quaint Irish wisdom and lightness. Uh, I don't think he is that at all. Even in his very last poems, uh, there remains um, a very disgruntled edge to what he is getting at. The first is a poem called Dream. With a billhook whose head was hand-forged heavy, I was hacking a stalk thick as a telegraph pole. My sleeves were rolled in the air fanned cool past my arms as I swung and buried the blade, then labored to work it unstuck. The next stroke found a man's head under the hook. Before I woke, I heard the steel stop in the bone of the brow. And the next one is uh, one of Heaney's fav- famous poems called The Forge all i know is a door into the dark outside old axles and iron hoops rusting inside the hammered anvil's short-pitched ring the unpredictable fan tail of sparks or hiss when a new shoe toughens in water the anvil must be somewhere in the center horned as a unicorn at one end square set there immovable an altar where he expends himself in shape and music. Sometimes, leather-aproned, hairs in his nose, he leans out on the jam, recalls a clatter of hoofs where traffic is flashing in rows, then grunts and goes in with a slam and a flick to beat real iron out, to work the bellows. Here is a third poem from Seamus Heaney's 1969 collection, Door into the Dark. Uh, It's called Bogland, and it's dedicated to T.P. Flanagan. And we can see here, and in a poem from his next collection, three years later, how he is heading towards the great uh, savage poems in his 1975 book, North. This is Bogland. We have no prairies to slice a big sun at evening. Everywhere the eye concedes to encroaching horizon is wooed into the cyclops eye of a tarn. Our unfenced country is bog that keeps crusting between the sights of the sun. They've taken the skeleton of the great Irish elk out of the peat set it up, an astounding crate full of air. Butter, sunk under more than a hundred years, was recovered salty and white. The ground itself is kind black butter, melting and opening underfoot, missing its last definition by millions of years. They'll never dig coal here. Only the waterlogged trunks of great firs, soft, As pulp Our pioneers keep striking Inwards and downwards Every layer they strip Seems camped on before The bog holes Might be Atlantic seepage The wet center Is bottomless I'm fairly certain That that is also the last poem In his second book And it recalls the last poem In his first book where he is recalling a moment as a a child, uh, looking down at wells. And he says, I rhyme to see myself, to set the darkness echoing. And that becomes one of uh, Heaney's chief concerns. Looking down into the dirty water, looking down at what may or may not be one's own reflection, looking down underground and seeing what it is that looks back. So tonight I'm going to read again from Dennis O'Driscoll's wonderful book, Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney. And here we will hear uh, Seamus Heaney talking about his second collection of poetry, Door into the Dark, which came out in 1969. I realized, though, uh, after reading the first one uh, and spending maybe five or ten minutes on a few poems from the book, and then a half hour uh, reading from interviews that Heaney gave to uh, Dennis O'Driscoll about the poems and about his life at the time, uh, it may seem that I'm contradicting myself somehow. I've mentioned a few times here that what I'm after with poetry very often is not the study of it or the dissection of it, but the experience of poetry. more broadly, the experience of art itself, not really a bunch of people sitting around and uh, trying to explain it or talk about it. And so it can seem that by only reading a few of the poems and then a great deal from an interview that uh, I'm sort of going back on that. But I think the, the, what uh, O'Driscoll does very well, and especially the, the parts that I'm going to read here, I'm not reading anything theoretical from Seamus Heaney. I'm not reading anything where he is uh, uh, trying to explain himself in some academic way, especially right here where he's talking about the uh, beginning of his career he makes it very clear that even though he was a teacher uh, for part of his life, he doesn't consider himself to be a professional or an academic and The parts of the interviews that I focus on, uh, at least for me, is the other side of the coin of experiencing art. And that is trying to gain some sort of insight in how artists live, how they get on when they're not making their art, how they stay sane coming down from the high of being on the mountain and creating something, or of in the case of a musician, you might say, of performing it. Uh, even a poetry reading, I can remember feeling uh, very high on myself after coming down from a poetry reading. How do you get by when you're not doing that? Uh, for some reason, the image that came to me uh, a month or so ago was uh, seems a good one, and I'll keep repeating it. How does Homer take out the garbage. How do you do all the mundane day-to-day stuff? And I think that uh, Seamus Heaney gets to this very, very well. And it's also true, it's also worth saying that as we get into Heaney's other collections, I will be reading more than just three or four poems from a single collection. But on to the interviews. Uh, The first question that Dennis O'Driscoll asks is, Uh, you must have felt burdened with the high expectations after the reception of your first book, Death of a Naturalist, in 1966. How self-conscious and nervous were you when you embarked on *Door into the dark? And Seamus Heaney says this. I remember having this big, hard-backed, blue notebook and starting in on it very deliberately one Saturday morning that would have been in the autumn of 1965 not long after we'd come back from the honeymoon and moved into our first semi-detached on a housing estate on the edge of Belfast I was like a pilot standing at the edge of an aerodrome looking out at the plane he would have to fly there was a terrific sense of having arrived somewhere and at the same time, a definite anxiety. Would you get off the ground again, and on course, and then get landed again safely? And just from that image we can see uh, why Heaney interviewed so well. He can give you, uh, he can talk very workmanlike uh, and very colorfully about writing, and he can also give you an image like that, that does not seem overwrought or pretentious. It sounds extremely sincere. And he says, The poem I did that morning came from a sort of professional drive, an order I gave myself on the lines of, "Okay, you are now a published poet and you should have a discipline. Sit down at that desk and get on with the job in a more organized way. The poem was one called The Salmon Fisher to the Salmon, and it appeared in due course in the second book. But I always had mixed feelings about it. It started where I always liked to start, in the ground of memory and sensation. But I had a hunch that during the actual writing, the impulse had got tied up rather than set free. There wasn't enough self-forgetfulness. So yes, there was definitely a new self-consciousness At which point I realized that the one simple requirement, definition even, of lyric writing is self-forgetfulness. And luckily I was able to attain it when I hit on the first line of The Forge, which is, all I know is a door into the dark. Or when I got stuck into the matter and movement in the poem called Requiem for the Crappies, I did those ones relatively soon after the publication of the first book, and I felt on course." And here he is uh, talking about what exactly he was trying to do with his poetry at the time. Uh, What I was after. Even if I wasn't as clear about it at the time, was a way of making the central tradition of English poetry, which we had absorbed in college and university, absorb our own particular eccentric experience. But I'm making heavy weather of the whole thing, put it more simply, there was an element of transgression in celebrating the crappies in official Ulster in nineteen sixty six and there was an implied alternative to the British connection, in making the Bog of Allen the mythic center. Yet I also have to say this. What pleased me most about my poem Bogland wasn't its theme or its first-person plural, but the fact that it had been given had come freely, and had arrived out of old layers of lore and language, and felt completely trustworthy as a poem. It may have (laughs) excuse me it may have said we but it was still all me and here Dennis O'Driscoll says it seems prescient that you placed Bogland at the end of Door into the Dark because the poem points forward to so many others where you use Bog as a metaphor and Heaney responds from the moment I wrote it I felt promise in Bogland without having any clear notion of where it would lead, or even whether I would go back to the subject, I realized that the new coordinates had been established. Door jams with an open sky behind them rather than the dark. I felt it in my muscles, nearly, when I was writing the poem. And O'Driscoll says, an out of the ordinary moment? And Heaney says, if there ever was, yes, Perfect self forgetfulness, then coming to something different. The kind of thing you wish could happen all the time. It seemed the right poem to close with, since it didn't seem to stop after the last line. And O'Driscoll says, You mentioned elsewhere, if I remember correctly, that the poem came to you when you were dressing and about to go out for the evening. And Heaney says, All true. We were actually in London in my sister-in-law's flat, and I was putting my right leg into the trousers when I got the first line. I've often speculated only half in jest about the relationship between the unimpeded passage of the leg into the open-ended trouser and the free progress of the poem to the bottomless conclusion. It felt like its own yield. I revised a few words here and there, but it had come as a matter of waft rather than word choice. In the words of Patrick Cavanaugh, quote, some strange thing had happened. And here O'Driscoll says, I'd like to move from the closing poem of Door into the Dark to the title poem. Was the forge a real one, or is it a composite picture of a place and a man? (coughs) excuse me and Heaney says somehow any one forge is all the forges but yes I was thinking of Barney Devlin's forge at Hillhead on the roadside where you had the noise of myth in the anvil and the noise of the 1940s in the passing cars as ordinary or archetypical as you cared to make it Barney's in his late 80s now but still capable of striking the epic out of the usual. For example, at midnight on the last day of 1999, he hit the anvil twelve times to ring in the millennium, and relayed the tune to his son in Edmonton by cellular phone. He's still going strong, and the last time I was with him, he showed me two different anvils, and played them for their two different musics a sweet and carrying note from the one that had belonged to his grandfather which is the one I would have heard a mile away when I was younger and an abrupt, unmelodious dent from a later industrial ingot definitely not the one that rang in the year 2000. And it is just nice to uh, see Heaney from the beginning even though he's writing autobiographically in a sense he's pulling from his own life talking about self-forgetfulness it's a lesson uh, worth thinking about and here Dennis O'Driscoll says as a celebratory affirmative poet in many respects why did you choose to place an emphasis on death and darkness In the respective titles of your first two collections, that is, Door into the Dark and Death of a Naturalist. And Heaney says, death and darkness are there, I have to admit, in the titles, but I still want to object when you suggest I chose to emphasize them as negative factors. And why is that? Probably because I thought of, quote, the dark. In the second title, as a conventionally positive element, related to what T.S. Eliot called, quote, the dark embryo, end quote, in which poetry originates. The phrase, door into the dark, comes from the first line of a poem about a blacksmith, from a poem about a blacksmith, a shape-maker, standing in the door of a forge. And as a title, it picks up on the last line of Death of a Naturalist, Where the neophyte sees a continuity between the effect he wants to achieve in his writing and the noise he made when he used to shout down a well shaft to set the darkness echoing. There is also the usual old archetype of the dark as something you need to traverse in order to arrive at some kind of reliable light or sight of reality. The dark night of the soul, the dark wood, even D. H. Lawrence's dark sexual gods. In those days, D. H. Lawrence was something of a power in my imaginative land. And here's one of my favorite passages from uh, these interviews where he's talking about uh, family life and work life. He says, Dennis O'Driscoll says, With a child of your own, as well as college work, essay marking, traveling, and earning a living generally, there was a lot more than poetry going on in your life in the late sixties. How did you contend with the different demands? Did you pine for a more bohemian existence?" And Heaney says, I was never quite sure what I'd end up doing, so when the poetry suddenly arrived, just as I was starting out as a teacher. It was a redemptive grace, but by no means an alternative way of life. At that stage, I never even considered the possibility that I could give up the day job. We were young marrieds, young teachers, starting out with lots of other young marrieds and young teachers. Around about this time, for example, we attended the Longley's wedding and the Keneally's, We all might have had a certain bohemian rascality in us, but the weddings were formal affairs, clergymen and wedding dresses and carnations. And then came the mortgage and the kids. And come to think of it, it wasn't so long since Ted and Sylvia had gone through the same process in England. And uh, I can remember when I first read this book in 2014 how stunned I was to see that... uh, Seamus Heaney, in his mid to late 20s, uh, never considered that he would be able to make a living from writing, let alone from his poetry, whereas I, from the very beginning, and it's been one of my issues and one of my problems, really, has been the assumption that, yes, it is possible. It's just nice to see how effortlessly he was able to come to a completely different conclusion. And, (coughs) excuse me, O'Driscoll says, Did you ever write the way that Sylvia Plath did, getting up to attend to babies and then drafting poems in the early hours? And Hina says, I'll never forget the first night Marie came home from hospital with our son Michael. We hardly slept at all, listening for his breathing, wondering what to do about any crying, whether to feed him or not whether he needed to be changed. All kinds of protections seemed to have been peeled away. Competence had deserted you. But you gradually got used to it. We both tended to be awake for those feeds, waiting for water to heat in the bottle warmer, wondering if it was overheating, sterilizing the bottle, changing the nappies, dumping the dirties. I didn't actually write in those small hours, no. The waking up did, of course, make us both a bit bleary-eyed, but we were young and fit for it. If poetry can be written in the trenches, damn it, it can surely be managed between the day job and the night feed. And that is one of one of my favorite remarks there. Um, and it reminds me that uh, very often, right after my daughter was first born. Um, Not only did I write a ton of poems in the month leading up to her birth, but I also can remember many times waiting for the nap, the morning or afternoon nap, and having the weight of a poem in the front of my head. And uh, that was sort of what the new discipline was, of being able to put it on the burner, as it were, being able to hold on to that feeling in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do in the past and being able to release it uh, in that rare moment that I was able to actually write in silence. It's uh, definitely a learned talent. Um, there's another remark here that Heaney makes. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll is asking about uh, if there were any huge steps or changes between the first and second book and Heaney makes this nice remark that uh, that there certainly was a development from the first to second book but it was very different from Sylvia Plath going from her book The Colossus to her next book Ariel from Apprentice to Oracle and one unforeseen move, the poetic equivalent of breaking the sound barrier. I love that image. Um, And then Dennis O'Driscoll asks, Was there not concern that your poetry might tread on private family territory? And Heaney says, Probably there was, yes. But concerns of that nature wouldn't necessarily have been voiced explicitly. The method for dealing with them was already factored into the overall house style, reticence and ribbing in equal measure, more reticence from my parents, more ribbing from local friends and neighbors. And he quotes a line from his poem that says, my father worked with a horse plow. A line like that would always come in for comment. Not a hell of a lot was the sort of response you'd be likely to hear. On the other hand, I remember being worried about my father reading the poem, called Follower, and what he'd make of it, what I'd made of him. And to this day I don't know how all that went, whether he even read it. Years later he would hear it at poetry readings, but by then it had become more or less processed into a familiar tune. Things were more a tremble in the beginning, when personal matters were being bared for the first time. It felt odder for everybody. And Dennis O'Driscoll asks, Does your innate skepticism intensify doubts about presuming to pursue a life in poetry? And Heaney says, You could say that every poem I write, or that anybody else writes for that matter, is a way of overcoming those doubts. Anybody serious about poetry knows how hard it is to achieve anything worthwhile in it. I used to think that, if you came from a background like mine, your approach to the muse was shyer than if you came from a more bookish or artistic family. But now I am not so sure. Yeats had an artist daddy, Eliot had a poetry-writing mammy, and that was a great help to them. But what about Elizabeth Bishop, or Sylvia Plath, or Patrick Cavanaugh, or Fernando Pessoa? You could argue that skepticism about literature is what actually inspired Pessoa. And the next question. You have acknowledged that Patrick Cavanaugh helped you to get going, as did Ted Hughes, but were you consciously reacting against British urban poets? Do you remember what Anthony Thwaite wrote in his review of Door into the Dark, which said, Turbines and pylons for the 1930s, bulls for the 1960s. It's an odd progression. And Heaney says, I do remember, but at the time, I found myself pretty immune to that kind of jibe. In July 1969, soon after the book came out, Marie and I went with the kids for a long stay in the Bas Pyrenees district of France. This was thanks to the Somerset Mom Award. We set off in a Volkswagen Beetle and took our time, driving from La Havre right down to a village 30 miles inland from Bayonne, making stops and digressions all over the place, to Blois, for example, where Wordsworth had met Annette Vallon to Rue Daguerre in Paris on the way back to see John Montague. And what struck me everywhere on that journey was the massive summer reality of the crops of the earth, the plains of wheat round Chartres, the high-ranking maize fields where we lived beside the Gaves and the Bayern, the produce markets in every little town. There was an old sensational truth in those things. I got terrific strength throughout that summer from the sheer familiarity of the farmyard, the snarl of Monsieur Puy's tractor at five in the morning, the spray of the irrigation pumps in the maize fields at all hours of the day, the cattle in the sheds. I was writing every day in an old barn and felt guaranteed in my work. The pylons seemed more dated than the bowl. Excuse me. And that's a wonderful way of dealing with criticism as well. Something I heard ages ago that nothing is more dated than today's newspaper, whereas nothing is more timeless than Homer. Uh, That's the idea. Um, Let's see, what is this? This is a, a great remark that I think Heaney comes back to many times, at least I think I've seen him mention it a few times, uh, that when he started out teaching at university and later at other schools, uh, he came across uh, another scholar critic. And Heaney says, He told me, incidentally, that I needn't bother doing a thesis, and that instead I should write essays. And and in that way, he set the pattern for whatever critical work I would eventually do. And I still call to his grave in the churchyard at Drumbo. This is a man named John Harvey, W.J. Harvey. And uh, that, I don't think, would be the kind of advice that a poet getting an MFA would um, receive today. It might not even be possible to get a teaching job with just a B.A., And to have someone say, well, just write some essays now and again. Don't bother with the thesis. Um, If that had been the case, maybe I would have ended up in that kind of uh, atmosphere. But the times change. Um, The next thing. Ted Hughes suggested to you that the academy is acceptable, quote, as long as it doesn't change your language, end quote. And that is a reminder that Ted Hughes got out of uh, academia as soon as he could. I don't even think he uh, taught at all. And he was uh, worried for his friend Seamus Heaney, I guess, when he heard that that is what Heaney wanted to do. Uh, O'Driscoll says, Was this a worry for you in the early years? Did you take precautions against creeping academicism? specialist jargon or dry illusion in your writing. And Seamus Heaney says, D.H. Lawrence used to go on about, quote, sex in the head, and I'm tempted to answer by saying that my academic work involved poetry in the head, whereas my writing was actual poetry in the body. The writing of poetry used different muscles, almost physically. The words were dredged from different sources through different systems. And to be truthful, I wasn't in any deep or trained sense an academic, and never even got as far as doing an MA degree. The way I talked in lectures and tutorials, and in various bits of reviewing and essay writing, was very far from the kind of lingo and professional theory speak that a young academic ...has to master nowadays. I was amateur then... ...and I still am. And... uh, uh, ...of course... uh, ...listeners will know that I love... ...to hear that. And it seems to me that if there is a problem with... ...poetry today in the way that it is taught... ...and... uh, uh, ...imbibed in college... And in universities is because it is assumed that the muscles that write poetry and the muscles that teach it or, or learn it or are taught it uh, are the same and that or even that uh, the muscles that are used to teach poetry should almost take over the muscles that used to be used for writing it that poetry should be... Uh, Um, basically a bit of theory rather than uh, an experience to go back to. Let's see. And this is a nice remark as well, uh, a few pages on. Um, Dennis O'Driscoll is talking about uh, uh, the poetry gatherings that Heaney and uh, his friends would get into uh, when they were younger. I mentioned it in the last uh, reading from Heaney's interviews, and, and that gathering was called The Group. And by the time Heaney and some of the others began to move on, um, Dennis O'Driscoll asks him uh, what became of The Group. And Heaney gives sort of this sad little remark uh, because uh, for a time the meetings were held, uh, it appears, at his house, and Heaney says, at the same time, I felt I had inherited the group as a responsibility, and it clearly had become a poetry lifeline for others, for somebody like Norman Dugdale, for example, a senior civil servant who attended faithfully, or Joan Watton, who'd gotten married and was now Joan Newman, living on the outskirts. Unfortunately, when I was a convener, the meetings of the group were more sporadic and the locations were more varied. And that is sort of, uh, at least for me, that's sort of a touching story that uh, you have the idea of the young Seamus Heaney and uh, and these other poets uh, of his generation getting together and trading poems and comments. And also, tagging along were these other people who weren't teachers and who uh, didn't perhaps have any pretense, pretenses about becoming uh, known for what they were doing. And once these young kids moved on, these other people sort of didn't have a place to go. And that's a uh, And so I mentioned their names here, Norman Dugdale and Joan Newman. I'd like to look them up and see if they ever did publish any books of poetry. Um, I can check here. Just on the off chance. No. And one of the great things about Dennis O'Driscoll's book is that there are the potted biographies at the very end. And there is not a... There is not one of those for Norman Dugdale, but there is one for Joan Newman. Coming of age, 1995, and prone, 2007. And she was about as young as Heaney was. She's His contemporary just lived out in the wild, as he says. And then you come to someone like Paul Muldoon, uh, and... Dennis O'Driscoll asks for uh, to describe how Heaney met Paul Muldoon. And it's a wonderful little story, the way he answers it here. And again, you get a handful of names that that listeners don't really need to know. Uh, It's just an indication of the universe that was floating around then and the universe that can sort of float around any community of poets. Heaney says that uh, Jerry Hicks... The teacher I mentioned earlier, and one of the three that Paul Maudun has written about in his poem called The Fridge, Jerry brought Paul to this Arts Council recital of poems and songs, being given by David Hammond, Michael Longley, and myself. Paul, as you would expect, was quiet, like any schoolboy being introduced by a master. But there was nothing schoolboyish in the poems he eventually sent to me written out in this terrific big bold black ink calligraphic hand the letter as i remember said something like quote, "perhaps you can tell me where i am going wrong" end quote. i wrote back saying that i didn't think i could tell him anything he wouldn't find out for himself there was such sureness of voice and distinctness of imagining you were at you were at home and away with the poems immediately they belonged completely in the world of Armagh and in the world of the imagined. I considered myself lucky to have encountered them and had a real sense of occasion when I published them. Naturally, I commended Paul to Carl Miller at The Listener and Charles Monteith at Faber, but there should be no imputation that I, quote, helped him to get published editors are fighting to be the first in the field with a talent like that. And that's a nice generous comment that Heaney is sort of known for. I've never been able to get into Paul Muldoon's poetry myself. And he seems to have picked up the mantle of Irish poetry uh, uh, since Heaney has died. Um... But it's nice to see that even though they, at least from what little I know of Muldoon's poetry, that they write very different kinds of poetry, That, uh, and this is what a great poet can do. He can see the value in someone who also writes great poetry, but uh, in a completely different manner. And... These last two passages uh, concern uh, a poem mentioned at the very beginning, uh, Heaney's poem Requiem for the Crappies, which I believe is uh, about Irish revolutionaries around 1798 or so that were killed, and um, in its relations later to uh, the Troubles. And Dennis O'Driscoll says... Once the troubles flared, your poem, Requiem for the Crappies, might have been read as a potential rallying cry for militant republicanism, and if I'm not mistaken, you eventually stopped reading the poem in public. And this goes away to, to, or this gets one into a subject that Heaney uh, mentions in later parts of these interviews, of how he stayed away from politics uh, as best he could, and did not want to use his poetry merely for propaganda purposes, um, even though it would have been extremely easy for him to do so. And Heaney answers the question this way. When we were in Berkeley, California, sometime in 1971, there was an LP called The Four Green Fields, That had various rebel songs on it, and also a recitation of my poem, Requiem for the Crappies. Not, I should say, a recitation by me. Even so, at that early stage, I wasn't all that worried. The poem may have been appropriated, but it hadn't been written as a recruiting song for the IRA. No way. In the Northern Ireland context, its purpose was to exercise the rights of nationalists to have freedom of cultural speech, as it were, to make space in the official Ulster lexicon for Vinegar Hill as well as the Boyne and the Somme. In 1970 and 1971, there was promise in the air, as well as fury and danger, but soon enough it all went rancid. Internment was bad enough, but then you had Bloody Sunday in 1972, and Bloody Friday, dismaying hardness and ruthlessness in the violence all round, and at that stage a reading aloud of the poem would have been taken as overt support for the Provisionals' campaign. So that is when I stopped. And O'Driscoll says, Were those crucial consciousness-raising events for you, Bloody Sunday, I mean, and Bloody Friday." And Heaney says, The stakes were being raised to deadlier levels all the time. There was the baton charge in Duke Street in Derry in October 1968, and the surge of protest marches after that. Then the pogroms into the falls, the arrival of the British Army, internment, bombings like the Abercorn Restaurant, shootings like the linen workers in Armagh, the shootings in the Pentecostal churches in Darkley people you knew getting killed either by accident or at random or by deliberate targeting, the combination in your thought and feeling of what Yeats would have called abstract passion and its opposite, and what Wilfred Owen would have called, quote, the eternal reciprocity of tears, end quote. Nothing, Heaney says, nothing I can say about it seems to get it right. And then he ends with uh, a few more remarks about politics. The first is, I was all in favor of the civil rights people, the civil rights people of Ireland, that is, not of America. Um, It's worth, especially in that last uh, answer he gave, uh, the baton charge of Duke Street in Derry, bombings in the Abercorn restaurant, Uh, the pogroms into the falls, the shootings in the Pentecostal churches at Darkly, Uh, in America and, um, well, I guess anywhere, really, where uh, atrocities of these kinds take place, it's very easy to, uh, to shoot their names off the way Heaney is doing here and imagine that these things only happen here They only happen to my people, so that it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say comforting, but um, revelatory, I guess, really, or just uh, human to hear unfamiliar names uh, given to uh, other people's atrocities. Uh, These things are always happening. So he is talking about the civil rights uh, in Ireland. I was all in favor of the civil rights people, he says, but I've never been actively involved in politics. Too much fervor and certitude and point scoring, even in the right cause, wears me out. Something in me just wants to appeal to a higher court and get it over with. I suppose that's what the big marches were, essentially, a gesture towards larger justice, a declaration that some things brought us to the threshold of the intolerable. And maybe that is the limitations of Heaney and maybe of myself too. It can sound naive to say something in me just wants to appeal to a higher court and get it over with. But of course that is not possible. Um, and then he says this about how uh, he was involved in some of the marches he supported certain people and certain causes and he ends by saying, but even so, well before those meetings had ended, I'd go home to Ashley Avenue and the essays and the nappies while they'd proceed to student flatland and get going on plans for shaking and shaping the future. And that's Seamus Heaney talking about Door into the Dark. Um, and it ends on that note I think that's a a good note to end on it's very difficult especially nowadays that we are surrounded by news and we're surrounded by the various shamings of social media where we're being told uh, how to act and what kind of activism is necessary and right and the rest of it is cowardice or it's just silence if you don't do anything Um, or if you don't do the kind that is being demanded of you, um, it is worth saying that uh, people have their places, and it's no explanation, and it's not right that one person's place is out in the street uh, being the victim of violence, while another is the more passive one of making poetry out of it all, but uh, there is almost no use enforcing in one into being the other. And, um, well, that is an entirely other matter. And uh, I will just leave Heaney here for now. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us